I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dev Raga Personal Finance podcast episode number 25. Um, now, if you're new to this, uh, I've just set up a Facebook page um, literally called Dev Raga Personal Finance. You can search for it. Um, you can join it, follow it, comment on it. And the aim of the Facebook group is basically to put forward some basic financial principles that may be valuable to the general public. Um, and um, uh, and I'll also provide some links to the podcast episodes that I've done and also provide links to some of the external resources that I use, uh, particularly things like Investopedia um, and certain very prominent YouTube clips, just to get your financial education in an order because I, I strongly believe that knowledge is power, and I think if you know more about your own finances, um, that is the biggest step that you can take in terms of, you know, um, getting something secure for yourself and your family. Now, in this episode, um, I thought I'd talk a, um, a little bit about behavioral finance, um, because most of financial um, uh, education sort of relies on behavior, um, and we'll talk about some investor psychology and some investor irrationality as well. Um, and the second part of the podcast will be, you know, should you uh, buy your own home versus rent a house or this concept called rent vesting, which I'm sure you've um, heard about on the grapevine. Um, and lastly, if we have enough time, I'd like to go through some of the summary um, of what's happened with the findings of the Royal Commission. For overseas listeners, um, in Australia, we've just had a Royal Commission, uh, which is a review of all the banking sector and the financial sector because of what happened um, in the Australian financial industry, where basically people were sold products which uh, of, were of dubious nature, essentially were lied to and also scammed. So um, we'll go through some of the main summary points of the Royal Commission. Now, before we get on to the meat of this, um, I just want to highlight um, a, quite an inspirational story um, that came to me via Facebook. Uh, basically, a uh, young couple um, in their 20s um, are working um, as doctors uh, in Australia and um, uh, dual income, no kids, so dinks. And um, they basically contacted me saying, um, you know, Devraga, look, we, we save about hundred to $125,000 a year. Uh, that's their net savings per year. And they wanted to know what they should do with their money. Now, first of all, that's an incredible feat for someone in their 20s to save that much amount of money. Granted, they're both doctors. Granted, they're both high-income earners. But still, they haven't um, let that get to their head. Um, and essentially, my sort of advice um, is quite simple. Um, take all of that and pop it in a long-term index investing fund, Vanguard or beta shares if you're into exchange-traded funds. Um, invest the dividends, reinvest the dividends, and keep contributing to it on a monthly basis. If they're going to save between $100,000 and $125,000 for, uh, per year for the rest of their lives, um, you know they're sitting on a potential of fifteen to $20 million portfolio by the time they retire in their 60s. Now, that's assuming that they don't get any raises 
in their work. Now, we all know that junior doctors get raises when they become registrars, when they become trainees, accredited trainees, and also when they become uh, consultants. So their income is going to exponentially increase over the next 10 years. And really, if they applied that to the 20% rule, that means the $100,000 that they're saving now, granted it's probably going to be 50% of their income, um, is um, going to be about 20% of their income as they make more money. But they've got to be a little bit careful about to ensure that lifestyle creep doesn't come in. So my advice is when they become a consultant, still live like a registrar, um, which is you know pretty good wage for dual-income families, particularly if you're both doctors, and make sure you contribute to that um, index investing or some sort of share portfolio that, that produces good dividends and good growth stocks. Um, don't invest in individual stocks. Um, just keep investing um, you know, on a group of stocks. So I invest in the ASX um, 300. Also invest um, in the top 20 to 30 shares uh, representative of the top 20 to 30 companies um, in Australia. And essentially you get dividends, you reinvest that, you contribute monthly um, what you save. And you know, in 30 to 40 years time, the chances are you're going to be retiring very, very wealthy. So it's such an inspiration that these young people um, who've just graduated in medicine, uh, just into their residency, are saving so much money. Um, and of course, don't get into consumer debt. Don't buy that drop-top car. Don't buy the convertible. Um, don't buy the Mercedes or the BMW, particularly early in your career. I'm not against luxury items. I'm just against buying it um, on uh, debt. So, um, you know, don't get into consumer debt. Save as much money as you can now because really they've really got the potential to um, let the power of compounding work to their benefit. So I thought I'd share that with you. I thought that's a very powerful story. Basically, this young couple, both doctors, both young junior res uh, residents um, are saving about $100,000 to $125,000 per year net. And essentially, if they did that for the rest of their lives, knowing that their income is going to exponentially improve, they're sitting on about 15 to $20 million in retirement portfolio. Now, if they've got about 4% in dividends, which is not an unreasonable expectation, uh, with when they retire, you know, you're looking at, you know, potentially, you know, four to eight million, uh, so four hundred dollars to $800,000 in income per year. That's very, very powerful. So I'll leave that for you to ponder. Now, let's get on with behavioral finance. Um, so we are going to get a little bit geeky here, so bear with me. Um, now, in terms of finances, our mentality has shortcomings. So we tend to buy things when they're expensive um, or when the price is rising, and we tend to sell them when prices crash. Now, this is completely unique to finances. We don't tend to do that when we're buying homes and when we're buying cars, um, when we go to the shopping. We don't tend to buy the most expensive product. But when it comes to finances, for some odd reason, we tend to do this. So you've got to ask why. Now, in the past, I've talked about efficient market hypothesis. Basically, the hypothesis is that the stock's price reflects all of the available information about the company. So basically, you can't beat the market. That's what the efficient market hypothesis um, says. So the stock's value is representative of the true value, and therefore, it's impossible to purchase undervalued stocks or sell stocks at an inflated price. So the only way to obtain higher returns is to purchase riskier investments. Now, it's a theory, it's controversial, etc., but it has some merits. And some experts just agree that it's pointless to scour for the undervalued stocks because it just doesn't happen. It can't happen because that's what the theory says. Well, 
What about people like Ray Dalio and Warren Buffett, who are seasoned investors, continuously have compounding growth of 20% per annum for over 20, 30 years? Um, you know, how do they do it? Um, they basically buy undervalued stocks or companies or businesses and then turn them into better or more value. Are they just superhuman? Human? Well, yes, they are a little bit superhuman. Uh, I'm not a Ray Dalio. I'm not a Warren Buffett. And I don't think you are either. So I'm not saying you're not ever going to be, but certainly the average person is not um, is not Ray Dalio. It's a bit like saying, you know, I'm as good as, uh, you know, LeBron James and Michael Jordan in playing basketball. I'm not. So I'm talking about the average investor here. So for efficient market hypothesis to work, then um, all the investors have to be rational. But I've already qualified that financial behaviors were actually quite irrational. So investors have to use all of the information about a company to make a decision to buy or sell stock. Now, quite obviously, this is not true because financially, we tend to buy things when they're high and sell things when they're low. So hence the topic of today, what is behavioral finance and what is that investor mentality and psychology? Behavioral finance just means that investors are often unable to rationalize and optimize our investments. Now, Dame Ramsey says it beautifully. He says personal finance is 80% behavioral and 20% head knowledge. And in my view, he's spot on. And that's why I feel that pay yourself first mentality, take away 20% of your after-tax income and invest it or save it and automate it means it's mindless. You don't have to think about it. And that behavior is automated. So you're going to execute it without any troubles. That's the idea anyway. So if we can better understand some of the common behavioral financial mistakes, then we can better understand how to invest more rationally. Let's use a real example here. You go to a store, you buy an item that's on sale. We buy it based on the price, the product details available at that store. This is our decision-making process. But we don't necessarily check every single store for that product and check that price, nor do we hunt around online, especially if the product is of small value. So we certainly do this for the big ticket items like cars and electronics, but we don't really do it for the small ticket items like groceries or iPhones or you know, uh, computers, etc., this is because we tend to reach, we, and I say we humans, tend to reach conclusions based on what is sufficient or satisfactory and not necessarily what is best. So when you go shopping, you go to Woolies or Coles and you see a product, the best way to handle it would be to search online, check Woolies, check Coles, check Aldi, check Costco, and then come to a decision. Now, for small ticket items, we don't do that because we feel that it's sufficient what we have in front of us at Woolworths as opposed to checking everything online and checking competitors. But that's not necessarily the best. Now, we do this every single day of our lives. And we make decisions every single day of our lives and probably don't even recognize it. It may work when buying groceries, but certainly it doesn't work when buying financial products. Why is that? Why isn't the decision-making process ideal in personal finance or investing? Well, that's because of biases. So let's talk about some of the different types of biases. Cognitive bias is probably the main one. Basically, we have some errors in processing of information and we have errors in recalling that information. And if we have errors in processing information and recalling that information without realizing them, it results in a reasoning being flawed and it results in analysis being wrong and therefore the end judgment or decision being incorrect or not ideal. So if you don't process the available information about a stock's value or a business's value or a service that they provide, then you're going to have a flawed error of judgment. And as a result, you're going to use that flaw and buy that stock. And that might not be the right decision to do. That's relatively, you know, um, an easy one. Now, 
Um, the second one is information processing bias. So what is that? We tend to put money into various baskets. For example, if you have two jobs, money from job one might cover expenses and money from job two covers investing options, even though money is just that. It's the same money. So the money from job one, we just put it into a basket for expenses. And money for job two, we just put it into another basket for investing. In fact, I do that because I have multiple sources of income. But when you think about it, money is money. So it doesn't have any difference between job one or job two. We just tend to utilize it for different purposes. Emotional bias, that's a third type of bias, impulsivity. Now, um, delayed gratification, that's, that's, that's quite an quite a important concept to grasp when it comes to emotional bias. Most of the time, and you look at people that go into consumer debt, they buy things based on emotion. The new iPhone has come out. The new Mercedes has come out. Or, you know, uh, a builder has come out with a new home design. And they just buy it on impulse. Or a new shirt has come out. Or whatever it is. A new product has come out. A new computer has come out. That's buying on emotion. But delayed gratification just means that we don't buy on emotion. We buy on rationality. But a lot of people don't do that. They don't delay their gratification. Uh, Dave Ramsey puts it beautifully when he says, Kids do things because they like it now. Adults, you know, we don't, we shouldn't think like kids. So we tend to, you know, not do things just based on current gratification. Although a lot of us do, particularly when it comes to consumer spending. And herding bias. So what's herding bias? Well, just because other people buy things, we tend to buy things. This is so, so common in finances. This is how crashes happen. And this is how bull markets happen. When there's a stock market bull market, which means the prices of all stocks are going up, Tom, Dick and Harry buys, therefore I'll buy. And when there's a crash, Tom, Dick and Harry sells, so therefore I will sell. So essentially, I've gone through this in my previous podcast. Why would you sell something if it's losing money? It's the time to buy because it's the same business. You know, your banks aren't changing. They're still making a lot of money. I think last I read, Commonwealth Bank made like $4 billion this quarter. It's incredible amounts of money. Commonwealth Bank is still minting money. Yeah, they're in trouble with the Royal Commission, but they're still making a lot of money. So why would you sell the stock? You buy the stock. You reinvest the dividends. You need to do it forever. And that's how you become wealthy, and that's how you make a lot of money, just by not reacting to the market, having a simple behavior, and that is to keep buying stocks and not selling them, and not going into consumer debt, you know, that, 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 will, that will be enough for most people to have a significant portfolio on retirement. So why is all this important? And how do we mitigate the risks of making the wrong financial decisions? Well, it's important because finance is mostly behavioral. So if you can reduce the risk of certain behaviors, you're best positioned to do well for your retirement. So let's talk about some of the things that you can do to reduce these risks, how to reduce these biases. If you have a system and process for making decisions, for example, buying a home is a good example, always do a building and pest inspection, always shop around for mortgage finance, always you know, check the repayment calculators, uh, always check the building quality and have um, inspections done, always have a look at the real estate agent's fees, always have a look at the Section 32 and review the contract of sale. You know, if you've, if you've had a system or process when it comes to buying Real estate, why should it be any different for buying any other investments? Why should it be any different for buying stocks? So when you buy stocks, you have a look at the business, make sure we understand it, 
review the pros and cons. Now, if you don't have time to do that, because I don't have time to buy individual stocks because I don't have time to have a look at all the uh, uh, you know business cases for each of these businesses, I just buy the index. It's much easier because we know over time the index funds tend to do much, much better and beat the market. Oh, well, they don't beat the market. They beat the active investors. I've talked about this um, in one of the episodes, active versus passive investing. So if you have a system and process to make decisions, the likelihood of you making a mistake um, is low. Of course, you've got to keep emotion out of it. Paying with cash. We know using cash actually reduces your spending. Hypocrite alert, I don't use cash all that much, but we know from research that even if you pay off the credit card monthly and on time and never pay interest, which a lot of you do, I know, you spend more on your credit card due to the ease of use than if you'd spent using your cash. So when investing, do not pay attention to what others are doing, so hurting bias. Keep your motive and actions consistent and make sure you don't act on impulse or emotions. So these are some of the strategies that you can use to reduce your biases and therefore reduce your risk of having investor irrationality and make sure that you focus on your behaviours and mostly if you do that, you don't need much knowledge, you don't need much knowledge if you just focus on your behaviours you are going to do well in the long term. Now, on to our second topic, which is rent versus buy. Um, you know, should I be renting a home uh, and then saving that extra money that I would have paid on mortgage and then investing it? Or should I just buy a home? Um, now, if you listen to Robert Kiyosaki uh, and also Rich Dad Poured Out, a lot of people think buying a home and living in it is good debt. What he says is that if you buy a home and live in it, it's actually bad debt because it doesn't produce any income because you're living in it. If you buy a house and rent it out, then that's actually good debt because that starts producing income. So, you know, I've talked about good debt versus bad debt in my previous podcast. So anything that produces income generally is considered good debt. Anything that consumes income generally is considered bad debt. So there are multiple factors to consider. What sort of home you're wanting to buy? What is the property market doing where you live at the moment? So the property market in Melbourne is um, declining, which is fantastic for all those people that are cashed up. I know plenty of people, I have a lot of friends who are just cashed up hundreds of thousands of dollars in their bank account, who are just waiting for the property market to crash even more just to buy homes, you know, 50% down payment, okay? What sort of income you have, um, so your debt-to-income ratio is really important. Now, I strongly believe you know, your mortgage repayment should not be more than 25 to 30% of your after-tax income. That's generally the rule. 25% is better, uh, 30% is maximum, but nothing more than that. You don't want to have a 50% debt-to-income ratio because it's just an absolute nightmare because you won't have any discretionary spending, you won't have any um, uh, ability to plan for emergencies, and if anything happens on a month-by-month basis, which slightly deviates, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. What amount of rent you're going to pay, and what investment return you would have received if you've invested the money elsewhere. Now, what is this concept about rent money is dead money? Is it? Well, what about rent vesting? We need to assume some things to consider the comparison, and that is if you have rented a home, you'll save money to put away, because if you don't save money, that is the difference between the rent money and the mortgage money that you would have paid, then buying is definitely a better strategy. And this is where behavior comes in. If you're not behaviorally competent to save money despite renting, then buying a home and living in it is your best bet, because it's a form of forced savings. So let's consider each of the elements before and go through them one by one. What sort of home you wanna buy? 
I've talked about this before. The rules of a mortgage is that you never commit more than 25 to 30% of your after-tax money towards mortgage repayments on a monthly basis. Buy a big home, you can't afford, means paying off a mortgage, you can't afford, which equals mortgage stress. And if you read the newspapers, there are a lot of people under mortgage stress. If the interest rates just go up by 1% or 2%, all these people will be forced to sell. Okay. Now, if you live in an area where the market is very high, uh, you might, might want to rent there. Uh, and buy somewhere else where the market is quite low. And that, that that's basically called rent vesting. Okay. Do you have a stable or secure income? And if so, then buying might be an option. If not, then renting is an option. The last thing you want to do is buy a home and not being able to afford to pay for it because you don't have a stable income. Getting a home loan nowadays is much harder than even when, say, five years ago. And that's because of all the banking sector changes, the Royal Commission, etc. I had a colleague recently who just wanted to, you know, borrow on their equity to renovate their home and they had to jump through all sorts of hoops um, just to get, you know, a $40,000 home equity loan to actually renovate their um, renovate their um, sunroom or something like that. And, and, and they was telling me what a painful process it is. So the last thing you want to do is buy something that you cannot afford. And the last thing you want to do is buy something on a long-term basis that you don't have a stable income for. If that's the case, then renting might be a better option for you. And what is the rent you want to pay? It entirely depends on where and what type of property you want to rent, which in turn depends on your specific circumstance. Are you a single? Are you a couple? Uh, do you have family? Do you want to have pets? Where do you work? Where do you study? And if you did rent, you need to work out what is the average rate of return for the investment you make for the money left over after renting. So let's say if you have a mortgage um, of $2,000 after tax money, but your rent is $1,000, then what are you going to do with the spare $1,000 and where are you going to put it to get a return? Now, assuming you have no other debts, because it makes sense if you have other debts to pay that off first, in the long run, I've talked about this and I've, you know, I don't want to sound like a broken record, investing in an index fund over the long term is your best bet. So here are some of the other pros to buying a home. It's in forced savings. You have to pay the mortgage. Your home is your castle. When you live in your castle, when you live in your own home, it's freedom, okay? It increases in capital appreciation, hopefully. So when I bought my home in 2009, compared to what it's worth now, I've doubled, maybe even tripled my money. I've made some big changes. I've built a, you know, built a big house on it, etc. But yeah, over time, the actual value of your home goes up, and that's because the land goes up. And we know that land in Australia is very, very scarce. That's usable, livable land in urban areas. Control of repayments, so which means that you know you have a monthly mortgage repayment, which doesn't really you know change very much, particularly if you have a fixed rate of interest, and where you live. When you rent a home, you don't really have certainty of tenure. Now, I have a few investment properties. I have a lot of very good tenants, and I'm going to keep them long-term, and I've had one for at least two years, and the other one's more for more than three or four years now. But if I really wanted to, I could say to them, sorry, guys, I'm going to demolish the house and build another house or build townhouses. I'm sorry, you're going to have to vacate by a certain time. Of course, it's it's got to be done legally. You can't just kick people out randomly, but you don't really have certainty of tenure which means costs are moving. Every time you move a house, you've got to get the removal list, you've got to pack up. It's just a, you know, a lot of time wasted. So these are all the pros of actually buying a home and living in them. What are the pros of renting? You can live where you want to live. Generally speaking, if you want to buy a house where you want to live, uh, it might be a little bit more expensive than actually renting where you want to live. Now, you can save up that extra money, the difference between the mortgage that you would have paid versus the rent that you have to pay, 
right now. You can save it up and put it in your pocket right now. Now, it completely defeats the purpose if you go out and rent a home, which is more expensive than having a mortgage. That just defeats the purpose. Um, now, you don't have to worry about repairs, property taxes, council rates, building insurance, upkeep of property. So, you know, I recently bought a house uh, a couple of years ago and I had to do a lot of maintenance on it because the tenants were not particularly happy. And now that's, to me, yes, I can tax deduct it, it's an expense and I can depreciate whatever new uh, assets that I've installed in the home, but I had enough capital expenditure uh, and I paid it all with cash and I had enough sort of financial backing to do that. If you don't have it, then yeah. You know, um, uh, you're gonna you're gonna lose out. So when you're renting a home, certainly the tenant has certain expectations, and they can certainly ask you to fix a lot of things. With renting a home, you have a lot of flexibility. You can say after 12 months, mate, you know, I want to move states, I want to move jobs, I want to move houses. It's your prerogative. You don't have to rely on your landlord. You don't have to rely on anyone else. When you buy a house, you know, you're not going to be able to buy a house every 12 months. Certainly, that's that's certainly the case. And lastly, what about rent vesting? The concept is that you buy a home where you can afford, but rent where you want to live or work. And advantages include it's very tax effective. So the mortgage interest and other costs and tax effective, um, you can all claim it back. And that's what we call negative gearing. But bear in mind, rent money is dead money. So that is, you're going to have to rent in a place and you're going to have to buy somewhere else. Now, of course, if you want to live with your parents and then buy something and then rent it out, beautiful. That is the best situation because essentially you're going to be living with your parents and hopefully they don't charge you anything or they're going to charge you something very, very nominal. Uh, That is just a fantastic way. But eventually, remember, when you sell property and you've rented it out because it's an investment property uh, and you've owned it for more than one year overall, you will need to pay capital gains tax of 50% of your net capital gain depending on your marginal tax rate. So it's not all free lunch, okay? So if you make a profit of $100,000 on an investment property when you sell it, you've got to pay tax, depending on your marginal tax rate, uh, based on the $50,000, uh, which is 50% of the profit, okay? So you've got to um, take that into account. It lowers the cost of investment. So you can basically buy where you can afford rather than having to be tempted to overcommit and buy where you want to live, which is presumably, in a lot of cases, more expensive. Um, you can invest the difference between what it costs for renting and what it would a mortgage would have cost. So basically, all that negative gearing that you can do, all the tax-effective strategies, you can take that money and invest it, particularly in the stock market, and you can gain some rewards over that. But that's speculative. It's not guaranteed. Um, but, um, you know, it, it all depends on where you put that money. Um, and it all assumes that you're measured, you're well-disciplined, and don't waver your commitment to invest. So you've studied behaviours in finance and will stick to the course, which many don't. You're fighting an uphill battle. If you're thinking about, um, you know, uh, buying and, and sort of using leftover money and investing it. Look, a lot of people do it. I'm not saying you can't, but certainly you've got to have your financial behaviours down packed. If you don't have that down packed, this is a very risky manoeuvre and very risky strategy. And certainly when you want to buy a house, whether it's investment or personal, make sure you put in 20% uh, deposit because it just avoids uh, Linda's mortgage insurance. Um, certainly for high income earners, I know certainly for doctors, you can get it for 90%. So basically you only have to save up 10%. Uh, but if you have your own business, if you're self-employed, if you're a tradesperson, then really you have to put in 20% deposit because the banks just won't trust your income essentially. Um, but don't forget, um, you can always negotiate. Don't be afraid to negotiate with banks. At the moment, uh, it's quite difficult to get a loan. So it looks like the consumer is going to have uh, to fight hard to get that loan. 
but just change banks, go to smaller banks, go to mortgage brokers, um, you know, make sure that um, you do shop around. Now, this podcast is getting a little bit too long, but very quickly, I will talk a little bit about the main findings of the Royal Commission. And we'll break it up into mortgages and mortgage brokers, farmers specifically, car dealerships, financial advisors, superannuation, um, and certainly um, the cultural elements of the financial industry. Now, first of all, mortgage brokers. Believe it or not, in the past, mortgage brokers did not need to act in the best interests of their clients. Their clients meaning consumers, not the banks. Now, to me, that's mind-boggling. That's a bit like going to a doctor and the doctor doesn't have to act in the best interest of the patient. Um, That's crazy. You know, if someone said that to me, I'd say, well, you're crazy. Well, that's how it was for mortgage brokers, okay? Borrowers will need to pay the brokers a once-off fee, so brokers can't have trailing commissions forever from the banks. So this is why there's a conflict of interest. Let me give you a real-life example. If I'm a mortgage broker, broker, and I get paid a trailing commission for the rest of the life of the mortgage through one bank, and then another bank pays a better trailing commission, then naturally I'm going to make more money with bank two. So therefore, I'm going to recommend bank two. Now, I can't do that because I won't get the trailing commissions. The consumer has to pay me. And thirdly, the mortgage brokers have to act in the best interest of their consumer clients. And any breach of these rules results in a fine and there's an accountability trail. So someone to monitor this and enforce it. Now, when it comes to farmers, banks must have a system to deal with farmers in remote areas and also those with poor English skills. So you can't sell things to people that don't understand English. Can you believe that's happened in the past? And this prevents sale of products farmers don't understand and don't know. And if an area is declared to be under drought or natural disaster, banks can't charge interest on the debts. Now, I think that's a very emotionally um, fantastic you know, outcome of this. I mean, we've had a lot of farmers struggling with drought, uh, bushfires, uh, a lot of families struggling with natural disasters. And if they don't have a source of income because their farms have been destroyed, how the hell are they going to pay interest? So now the banks are legally required to freeze their interest payments. And I think that's a fantastic move. Now, if you're a farming loan manager, you must have agricultural banking experience. Now, seems very logical. If you're going to lend money to farmers, then you need to have some idea about the agriculture industry. At the moment, there was no such requirement. And again, that's mind-boggling to me. Car dealerships. Now, you probably didn't hear about this, but the car dealerships in the past didn't have to abide by national consumer credit protection laws. Again, mind-boggling. Now they have to abide by those laws. So you go to a car dealership and they're selling your financial products in the, in the form of consumer loans, but they don't have to abide by the national consumer credit protection laws. So they're providing credit, you know, legally, and they don't have to actually abide by any laws in relation to that. To me, that's incredible, okay? Financial advisors. Now, there's going to be an overarching body which disciplines and oversees the financial advisor industry, which means financial advisors must be registered. Again, if you went to a doctor who wasn't registered, you'd say, well, hang on, that's a bit dodgy. In the past, financial advisors need not be registered. To me, that's mind-boggling. So these are all very simple things. Um, There'll be a cap on life risk insurance products and eventually the commissions will go. Conflicted remuneration models to be banned eventually. This is going to be a slow effect. So for example, um, you know, uh, if you have, you know, a particular life insurance agent who gets commissions from one product compared to another product, 
the life insurance agent is probably going to sell you the product that offers more commissions to him or her and doesn't really matter whether it's the best product for you. So the conflicted remuneration model will be banned eventually. I'm not sure about the time course of events for that. And of course, if there's a serious compliance concerns and the banks should report the financial advisors to ASIC. Remember, uh, there's a lot of financial advisors that screwed people over, um, certainly, um, which was, you know, which has come about in this Royal Commission. Superannuation. Now, <laughs> I think this is a really good rule. When I actually got new jobs, um, certainly as an intern, resident, registrars, you just move around a lot. Um, I stuck with one superannuation fund, which was, uh, and I'm with Hester, and I stuck stick with them. Um, but many many employees basically get new superannuation account each time they move to various places. So at the moment, um, what the Royal Commission has suggested, um, basically have a single default superannuation fund for everyone. So when you change employers, you don't end up getting another account. This saves on fees. So the first thing you're going to do after listening to this podcast is making sure that you don't have any lost super. If you Google lost super, you'll get a link. You click on the link and put your name and credentials down and see if you've actually got super sitting around in various super accounts and try and consolidate your super. Now, um, there's a ban on advice fees from my super accounts and selling of superannuation is going to be more regulated. As part of the Royal Commission, they've actually found out there's a lot of dodgy companies, Commonwealth Bank, NAB, ANZ, Commonsure, Allianz, AMP, Clearview and more, up to 24 companies. Uh, all of them have been referred for ASIC for potential criminal or civil charges. Can you believe that? Uh, it's incredible that big banks are behaving in such, uh, in my view, quite disgusting um, uh, sort of behaviours, okay? Um, and uh, in terms of culture... Um, you know, they're going to change the culture. That is, there's got to be transparency on remuneration models. Uh, there's going to be overarching governance um, and you've got to regulate the regulators. So that's the summary of the Royal Commission. Until next time, make sure you save 20% of your net income. Make sure you invest or save it and put it aside. Do not borrow money and think about behavioural finance and investor psychology. Think about one of the, some of the things that you do which may be negatively impacting on your retirement next deck, particularly from a behavioural finance point of view. Think about if you want to buy a property or whether you want to rent a property or whether you want to rent vest. And of course, think about all the positive things that's going to come out of the Royal Commission. Now, my understanding is it's not all live. I think there are about 76 recommendations. Uh, but my understanding is the current government um, are going to certainly endorse um, all of those recommendations. So things are moving ahead in a very positive way. Now, if you have any questions or concerns, or if you want to just chat, um, sure, uh, contact me by email or Facebook or whatever. Um, I'm not a licensed financial advisor, but I'm happy to help you out and guide you through the personal finance sector. It's a process and it's a system that I'm learning myself. But I find that there's a lot of people out there, guys, who just don't know the basics of finance. And that's one of the main, main missions of this podcasting channel and also the Facebook group. So until next time, make sure you pay yourself first, save that 20%, do not go into consumer debt, and like always, stay safe. Thank you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 